Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We all know that phrase, uh, misery loves company. And sometimes it's used in two ways. One is maybe a little more positive. You know, someone who's suffering wants some consolation in a social sense from someone else. Um, Like Job needs consolation in the book of Job. His friends give it to him for the first seven days, and then they start talking to him and telling him all his suffering is his own fault for some sin he's committed. That, That part was not as good. But there is a more negative sense we use the phrase, right, where somebody who is miserable can't stand to see other people something other than miserable. And so they will do what they can um, in order to make everyone else around them miserable as well. I can testify to this recently. If you've ever talked to our son Jude, you know that we're big Carolina Hurricanes fans in our household. And they made the playoffs this past year. And they lost in the second round to the New York Rangers. Well, I have a really good friend from college who's a big New York Rangers fan. So they went on and they lost the next round of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I was so happy that my friend could experience the same kind of misery that I had felt just a, few, just a week or two earlier. Fortunately, that's maybe not the most consequential example of misery loves company, but it is a true principle. And I think a principle that applies most accurately to the devil. Um, now, when we talk about the devil, it's really important for us to avoid two extremes. There's the one extreme of, of blaming him for everything. You know, we, we shouldn't see him behind every tree or in every little minor inconvenience throughout our day or in every person who might be a little bit of a jerk. On the other hand, uh, it's also important that we not ignore him just because we reject some caricature of a guy with red skin and horns and goat legs and a pitchfork. In fact, in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, this is the tactic that the demons take. The first priority is to try and convince people that Satan's not real. But if they're unsuccessful at that, then the backup plan is to convince people of a real caricature of Satan so that they can kind of discredit the idea. In this morning's epistle, I think that St. Peter really urges us to take the devil seriously because it's possible for the devil's sophistry and his temptation to destroy our souls. And in response to satanic temptation, St. Peter shows us a way forward, a way characterized by humility, a way that clings to the cross, and a way that's sober and vigilant. To better understand the devil, it's helpful to understand his first sins, pride and envy. Pride, what we might call self-worship, is evidenced by his great fall. We're pretty sure that Lucifer was the pinnacle of the angelic order, perhaps the most beautiful of the heavenly hosts. Yet he rebelled against God. His fall is summarized in John Milbank's Paradise Lost when he has Satan proclaim that line, it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. This proclamation, I think, is the foundation for what we call spiritual warfare. The devil and the fallen angels represent this arrogant insistence that a creature may know better than their creator, that something which is made should have more power than he who made it. This is why pride has been considered by many Christian theologians to be the worst sin. St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, points out that most other sins can be chalked up to ignorance or weakness or an imbalanced search for the good. We might remember that line from St. Augustine that even the man in the brothel is looking for God. But pride doesn't really stem from ignorance or from weakness or a misguided search for the good. It comes from an aversion to God 
simply through being unwilling to be subject to God. That is, that we dislike God because we don't want to have to obey him. We want to do things our own way. For this reason, pride is considered the beginning of all vices. It is the necessary condition for all of the other deadly sins of greed and wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Pride, then, is the first sin, a sin that describes Satan's fundamental orientation towards God. Now, Ben Franklin, of all people, observed that pride manifests itself in smugness or arrogance, envy or domination. The pride of the devil worked itself out in envy towards humanity. Lucifer wanted to be the pinnacle of God's creation. But in Genesis, we're told that God made humanity in his image and likeness. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Being image bearers means that we are God's representatives to creation. We're his co-regents. We're mediators between heaven and earth. And this requires us to be rational creatures. Satan, seeing this, burned with rage, and his envy of our position led him to attack our first parents with deception in an episode we now call The Fall. This toxic combination of pride and envy marks in Satan what we might call a complete and total inward turn. He has completely and totally alienated himself from the good, and misery loves company. His war on God began there in the garden, trying to convince Adam and Eve to join him in his misery, and it's continued through the course of human history all the way up to today. And it's in this context that the church finds herself. But the good news is that we see this conflict with eyes from, the post-resurrection, from a post-Easter perspective. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We know that God and Satan aren't locked in some sort of cosmic arm wrestling match where we have to place our bets on which side we think is more likely to win. No, God has won. God is winning and God will win. In Hebrews 2.14, the author tells us that Jesus took part of human flesh that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. And so the author of Revelation speaks with great assurance and confidence about the devil being cast into a lake of fire and brimstone for all eternity. Now, those of us who are here on earth as Christians compose what's called the church militant, the church struggling. That's us right now, as opposed to the church triumphant, those saints who have gone before us and are now in heaven with our Lord. So those of us who are part of the church militant find ourselves in the midst of a struggle as Satan attempts to dissuade us away from our course toward heaven. And this is why St. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. Now, just like someone with a hammer might see everything as a nail, it can become very easy for us as Christians to see everything as satanic, even other people. And there's a danger also, I think, living in a society where we've replaced God with self, because then whoever opposes self becomes the devil, even other people. This is, of course, mistaken. St. Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Other human beings we meet, even those who may be antagonistic to the church and her mission, are in a sense victims because they've been born into the bondage of sin and death. This, of course, doesn't mean that they lack culpability. People sin, 
because they choose to sin. But what this helps us to do is to see things as they really are. Just as God, through Moses, led the Israelites from bondage in Egypt into the promised land, and just as Christ leads his church in a new exodus from sin into holiness, so we, the members of the church militant, beckon those who have been born in chains into a new and better way of being that involves humility and dependence on the cross and vigilance. If pride is the root of all of, all of the vices, then pursuing virtue requires us to do the opposite of pride, that is, to acquire humility. Resisting the devil means embracing humility in relation to God, recognizing that he is our creator and we are creatures. St. Vincent de Paul once said that humility is nothing more than truth and pride is nothing more than lying. Humility is about the right assessment of self. It's not false humility. It's not underselling yourself. It's understanding who you are, not better or worse than you are. The devil often comes to us with lies that are aimed at inflating our pride. He told our first parents, you will be like God. He might also tell us something like, well, God has dealt you a really bad hand, a hand that you don't deserve. Or he might also tell us that person X didn't deserve what they got as much as you deserve it. To resist these subtle temptations, we must foster in ourselves a sense of humility. We are always creatures who stand in need of grace. And we have to come to the realization that where God has put us is not an accident. He places us where we are because, as the author of Hebrews says, he chastiseth whom he loveth. God, in his wisdom, puts us where we are for our benefits And we know, or at least we should know, that he knows more than we know. And this realization, I think, frees us up then to genuinely celebrate others because humility recognizes that their success is a good thing. It recognizes that we aren't the center of the universe. But how do we foster humility? We don't want to walk around thinking, well, I'm the most humble person I've ever met. The answer is through dependence on the cross. St. Peter tells us to cast all our cares on him. But that's only possible when we become aware of what Christ has done for us. Because on the cross, Jesus bore all the sins of the world. He enabled relationship to exist between God and humanity. And as a result, we know that what Peter says is true. He careth for you. Perhaps Peter there is drawing from Jesus' words about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air in Matthew 6. If God cares for those, how much more will he care for us? Just as he cared for the Israelites in the wilderness with manna, so he provides for us by his cross and the Holy Eucharist. The cross then helps us oppose two lies from Satan. It helps us remember that we are not self-sufficient, that we cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps because we are in need of grace. But it also helps us oppose the opposite lie, namely that grace can't reach us, that we're unredeemable, that we're too far gone. Instead, because of the cross, we cling to God and cast our cares on him. Now, the final instruction that, Jesus, that Peter provides for resisting the devil is to be sober and vigilant. Sobriety here is about being intentional and being in control of ourselves. That word can also be translated as watchful. And in 1 Peter 4, 7, the apostle pairs it with prayer. Perhaps he was remembering his failure in the garden um, during the last night of our Lord's uh, earthly ministry. Further, Peter commends us to, uh, to vigilance, an exhortation to be alert, 
to be awake, to be aware of the story in which you find yourself, to be aware that temptations are always at hand. And to this end, if we want to be sober and vigilant, there are two indispensable weapons in our arsenal, namely prayer and self-reflection. And so we resist the work of the devil when we pursue humility, when we cast ourselves on the cross, and when we are sober and vigilant. Spiritual warfare is real, and as members of the church militant, we find ourselves under constant pressure and attack from our own concupiscence, from the world and its attractions, and from the devil who's a roaring lion. We miss the point if we ignore those conflicts, or if we give our adversary too little or too much credit, or by seeing others as our enemies or the devil. Instead, the best way for us as the church militant to fight is living the faithful Christian life, fostering humility so that we can see things for what they are, clinging to the cross for dear life so we can draw strength by casting cares on him, and being sober and vigilant through lives of prayer and self-examination. The God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.